Jillian, could we take it back to the 80s real quick? I mean, sure. I'm Gen Z, so I'm not too familiar with what the 80s had going on. I know, me too. But let's try and come up with some things that we know about the 80s. Okay, the first thing that comes to mind is music bands like Bon Jovi and singers like Whitney Houston and Prince. Also, John Hughes movies are my guilty pleasure. Oh yeah, Sixteen Candles is one of my favorite movies. I always like seeing pictures of big hair, shoulder pads, and headbands. Yeah, (laughs) I love the hair looks. It's so interesting how trends and styles always come back. Maybe we'll enter a shoulder pad trend soon. I don't know if that would be for me, but it's interesting when you think about what life was like 40 years ago and how we still use a lot of technology and information from back then to function today. I don't know. I would think technology has changed a lot over the years. What are you referring to? For example, I was kind of thinking about how the information that was known on endocrine disrupting chemicals back then when the field first started is still very relevant to what we're living through today. When did the field of endocrine disruption take flight? I would say the late 1980s and early 1990s. But unlike those big hairstyles and shoulder pads of the 1980s, the field of science is not a trend. In fact, studies of EDCs continue to expand into more and more scientific disciplines every day. So it's a growing field with strong foundations in several scientific disciplines. I imagine we're going to have a lot of time to dig into those different fields of study in the episodes to come. But can we start by talking about the history of this field? Like, who thought of endocrine-disrupting chemicals? Yeah, let's just dive in. I'm Hannah. And I'm Jillian. And on this episode of A Daily Dose, we're going to break down the history and founding of endocrine-disrupting chemicals. We will be joined by our guest, Pete Myers, an OG to the field. Dr. Myers is a scientist, founder, and CEO of Environmental Health Sciences, a nonprofit organization that works to share news on environmental pollutants and health outcomes. As you'll hear, Dr. Myers has been here in the world of EDCs pretty much since the field began. For us to understand how the field of EDCs began, we actually need to start by going back to the 60s. The 60s? I thought you said that the field really started in the 1980s and 90s. Yes, but before the term endocrine-disrupting chemical even existed, Rachel Carson published a best-selling book, Silent Spring. In her book, she described the effects that had been documented, showing that pesticides were having a very serious effect on the health of wildlife, with particular attention given to birds. Why birds? She was noticing that in areas where pesticides were being heavily sprayed, that bird populations were in decline. Thus, the title of her book, Silent Spring, refers to the possibility that future seasons might be silent because there would be no birds and no insects left to fill our meadows, forests, and even our neighborhoods with birdsong. Carson also expressed concern that many of these same chemicals could be having negative effects on humans. 
Did she know that many of these pesticides were disrupting the hormones of wildlife? Not quite. She saw that they were affecting reproduction. She also saw that they were affecting wildlife. It wasn't a big leap to understand that they were altering hormones, but she didn't outright say it. So, the general idea that chemicals were messing with the kinds of biological processes that are controlled by hormones was there in the 60s, just not fully developed? Yes, that's a good way to put it. Of course, hindsight is always 2020, and now we know that many of the chemicals that Carson was examining are in fact EDCs. Okay, so fast forward again to the 1980s and specifically the late 80s. At the time, Dr. Pete Myers was researching the migration of shorebirds. I became increasingly concerned about one population of birds I was studying, sanderlings in Peru and Chile in the winter. That's sanderling mecca in the Western Hemisphere in the winter. They breed in the Canadian and the U.S. Arctic. And they go, some of them stay far, as far north as uh, Washington State and Massachusetts, but most of them wind up on the west coast of South America. And there were indications, as I was doing this work in the mid-80s, that that population of birds had fallen by about 90% over the last 10 years. Um, And there was no readily visible explanation. Over the course of his research, he recognized that these birds were being exposed to pesticides from nearby agriculture. Okay, so how did this affect the birds? I developed this idea that um, perhaps the cause of the decline had to do with all the pesticides in the food they were eating. Many of those pesticides were lipophilic that fat loving. So they would concentrate in those parts of the bird as it's eating, they would concentrate in fatty tissues, which was what the birds were doing is laying down a lot of fatty tissue. And then they migrate by flying four to five days nonstop, burning all that fat and landing at a stopover site um, en route to the Arctic. And I, as I thought about that, I asked what happens to the lipophilic pesticides when the fat is metabolized to give the bird energy. Well, it goes into the bloodstream and it goes from there to the biggest remaining reservoir of lipids and that's the brain. And so my hypothesis became that these birds were disappearing in migration because the pesticides were interfering with migratory orientation. Basically, they they were flying out to sea uh, and dropping somewhere in the Pacific, somehow losing the ability to orient. And I began work in the late 1980s to try and test that, um, involving sampling the brains of shorebirds that migrate from South America to the American Arctic along places in on the west coast of the U.S. And we discovered uh, with some scientific colleagues that, yeah, their brains were full of pesticides. 
His hypothesis and investigation on the effects of pesticides led him to giving research talks on this topic where he got the opportunity to meet Dr. Theo Colburn. Oh, another player comes into the picture. Yeah, and Dr. Colburn was another real OG. Back in the day, she was a pharmacist who decided to leave that field and in her 50s decided to get her PhD in zoology. In the course of doing her doctoral research, she began to uncover evidence that pollutants in the Great Lakes were not only responsible for cancer. Yikes. But that these pollutants were also contributing to developmental disorders by altering the function of endocrine organs. Through her studies of wildlife and human populations, she was beginning to recognize that chemical pollutants were having adverse effects on hormones. So their added interest in chemicals and hormones brought Dr. Myers and Dr. Coldborn together. What did they make of this? Interesting that you asked that. Coming up, let's talk about the relationship and the work that they were able to do together. Following the union of Myers and Colburn, the field of EDCs really took off. Together, they worked at W. Alton Jones Foundation, where Dr. Myers took the position as director of that foundation, and Dr. Colburn joined as senior research fellow. During their time, they created a conference that has been widely referred to by the name Wingspread. A conference? Theo had the idea of organizing the Wingspread Conference, which you may have read about uh, in Our Stolen Future and also an edited collection of of papers that she and Carly Clemens edited, um, where we brought together an amazing small group of scientists who did not know each other, but who Theo had figured out ought to know each other because each of them touched upon a different piece of endocrine disruption without knowing what it was. The Wingspread Conference set the stage for a group of scientists across many different disciplines to try and understand what kinds of changes were occurring in our bodies due to EDC exposures. Many of them did not know each other, but they all knew that something funky was going on with the environment and our endocrine system. So when did the name endocrine-disrupting chemical come about? Who came up with the term? As we were there discussing the issue in front of us, I said, why don't we call it endocrine disruption? Because it's not just a single thing. It's not just one part of the endocrine system. The whole thing is being affected in many different ways. And that I, I proposed that term because I thought it best captured in a scientific level um, the universe in which we were working. And Theo didn't particularly like it, but she didn't disagree. And John loved it and it stuck. Um, All my friends in communications laughed because they said, no one will ever remember that. And I've had the last laugh. That's wild. 30 years later and that name is now widely used. That's very true. In addition to the term endocrine disrupting chemical being coined, we need to discuss another foundational creation that was assembled at the Wingspread Conference. What was that? 
The group of 20 or so scientists at the conference wrote what is known as the Windspread Statement. This statement is based on the precautionary principle, which basically states that if there is something in the environment that could raise some type of danger to humans, precautionary steps should be taken, even if conclusive evidence of cause and effect are lacking. Wait, so the scientists said that we don't need more science? Think of it like the old statement, look before you leap. It doesn't mean that we won't keep studying something that worries us. It just means that we don't need to know everything before we agree that we should be careful. Okay, that totally makes sense. I don't need to know with 100% certainty that there's an alligator in a pond in Florida to know that I should avoid swimming in it. Exactly. So how was this idea of precaution applied to EDCs? Well, the role of wing spread was to organize information between scientists that was known and also to identify what was unknown. We were certain that lots of organisms, including people, were being exposed. And we were certain that the endocrine system was vulnerable. But many of the details were up in the air. In fact, some of the key things that have emerged um, in this field, for example, Neil Skakibach in 19... 19- 92, a year after wing spread, published the first major paper on sperm count decline. So the wing spread document had nothing about sperm count decline in it, other than perhaps some mention of specific individual papers in mice. It also didn't mention anything about obesogens. That issue really didn't emerge in the scientific community until the late 1990s. And I know you've had Bruce Blumberg uh, as a interviewee on this, and Bruce is a spectacular scientist um, and has done the world a favor by bringing his scientific credentials and skills, especially skills, to asking, are some EDCs metabolic disruptors or, as he put it, obesogens? So the, the, um, the wing spread statement was designed to pull together Uh, what we knew at the time, identify the agreements and the disagreements. Okay, I now understand the origins of the term EDCs, and I can see how the field really came together in the 1980s and 90s. But just because the term was coined then doesn't mean that EDCs were not in the environment decades before. You know, that is a very important part of understanding the history of EDCs. Coming up, we'll hear from Dr. Laura Vandenberg, researcher and professor of environmental health sciences at UMass Amherst. Laura is an expert in endocrine disrupting chemicals, particularly when it comes to women's health. So one of the most well-known and critically important examples of chemicals and specifically pharmaceuticals that had an adverse effect on human health is the story of diethylsilbestrol, or DES. I think I've heard of this. DES was prescribed to women during pregnancy, right? Right. So really up until the 1940s, it was thought that the womb was this fortress 
that you didn't really have to worry about what mom did during pregnancy. The whole idea about don't drink during pregnancy, don't do drugs during pregnancy, don't smoke during pregnancy, that's a pretty modern thought, which is shocking if you think about it. And during the, the lead up to World War II, there was a big chemistry search for chemicals that could act like synthetic hormones. And the silly idea at the time was that you could use hormones as a way to create superhumans, right? Hi hyper sporty, fast, strong bodies, silly. Although really that's what a lot of, um, you know, steroids that, uh, that bodybuilders take, right? Same idea. Okay, so it's the 1930s. All these chemists are on this chemical race to try to find synthetic hormones or discover them or develop them. And they, chemists, identified this chemical called diethylstilbestrol or DES as a very potent estrogen. And so they started using it in all kinds of ways. It was prescribed to women to treat the symptoms of menopause, like hot flashes. It was prescribed to women who had recently had a baby if they didn't want to breastfeed because it could help them to have their milk dry up. It was prescribed as birth control, but it was also prescribed to women who had already gotten pregnant because it was thought that if some estrogen is good for you, then more must be better. And all of these women that took DES during pregnancy, they had babies that for the most part looked like cute little babies when they were born through the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, until the story takes us to early 1970s. Wait, it was only up until the 1970s that they figured out that something very wrong was going on? Yes, imagine 30 years of blindly prescribing medication to women without any understanding of the risk. What's really scary is what happened to the children of the mothers who took DES during pregnancy. The way this story goes is that several young girls were seen in a doctor's office by Dr. Herbst, a well-known gynecologist, and they had a very rare cancer of the reproductive tract. And Again, so the story goes, one of the mothers says to Dr. Herbst, is this because of that drug that I took when I was pregnant? And he starts to ask all of the other mothers and they had all taken DES while they were pregnant. And that became the first knowledge, the first acknowledgement that hormone exposures during early development could cause harm. And that we should not really be fiddling with the endocrine system with the assumption that, you know, if we give you more hormones, then it'll be good for you. DES was really a warning sign. DES brought a lot of researchers early on into the field to try to understand how is it that these chemicals could act like estrogens? How is it that chemicals that are shaped more like DES than like natural estrogens could hijack the endocrine system? And if DES has such serious, serious effects, if you're exposed during early development, what are these other chemicals doing as well? Now, that very first early study in the 1970s found an increased risk for reproductive cancers. 
as those DES daughters continued to be followed, it was found that they would be at increased risk for infertility, increased risk for malformations of the female reproductive tract that had been invisible when they were born, because of course it's internal. They would be at increased risk for having an ectopic pregnancy. They'd be at increased risk for developing breast cancer in mid-aged adulthood. Wow, this sounds like a tragic story. That also proved to be evidence that chemicals can mess up our bodies. Yes, that is a good way to look at it. And remember, DES isn't just any chemical. It's an estrogenic chemical. And that makes it an endocrine disruptor. Exactly. For scientists, these effects of DES were a breaking point to show that our hormone systems are not to be played with lightly. These findings were really some of the first to make a direct connection between chemicals, specifically those that act as synthetic hormones and diseases. And most importantly, many were diseases that impacted future generations. So did DES even do what it was prescribed to do? That's the crazy part. It did not. The punchline of the DES story is, even though there was this idea that more would be better, more would help protect against miscarriage, it turned out not to be true. There was no benefit of DES. So not only did that extra hormone exposure lead to all kinds of cancers and malformations and infertility and long-term um, uh, pregnancy loss, but also it didn't even work. It didn't even do its job. So it requires that we have a lot more respect for what we don't know about the body before we start just fiddling around with it. You mean to tell me that taking DES had no real benefits and it had a huge negative effect on both mom and baby? Yes. And that is also one of the biggest developments in the fields of EDCs from the jump. Scientists who have been in this field have been constantly pushing the idea that exposures during critical windows of development can have effects that can take years to show up. Without real instances like DES, it must be challenging to show that other chemicals in the environment are messing up our hormones. Yes, and as we talk about the evolution of EDCs, we should also talk about some of the challenges within the field. Like we talked about earlier, we know that those who are familiar with EDCs understand that low doses have major effects on health, but not all scientists understand this. And because of this, the field of EDCs has faced an immense obstacle. Okay, I understand the difference between how a toxicologist would approach environmental health research and how someone looking at EDCs would approach it. But what does money have to do with this? Well, that has been another huge hurdle for the field. Just like other industries, money tends to drive a lot of decisions, especially when it comes to regulation. But where is this money coming from? And how would that affect the work of scientists? Well, the industries that create endocrine disruptors are not small little businesses. Like we talked about earlier, DES, a synthetic drug, 
was manufactured by several pharmaceutical companies, and it made those companies a lot of money. And when it was discovered by scientists that DES caused so many problems in exposed daughters, those manufacturers fought the scientists, tooth and nail. They didn't want to pay for the harm they had caused. Did they? There were some successful lawsuits against DES manufacturers, but they can hardly measure up compared to the total number of women that were hurt from the drug. And in the modern picture of EDCs, the number of industries that make or use chemicals that are EDCs continue to grow. Think about companies that make pesticides. That's just one industry, and their profits measure in billions each year. Billions with a B. So I think I can follow the dotted lines here. You're saying that because of all of this money, there's a conflict of interest between industry and science? Yes. These industries have a billion reasons to keep their businesses going, regardless of the science that is coming out about the harms of these chemicals. So the, the, the problem is the amount of money. The sales of BPA are worth a million dollars an hour. That pays for a lot of lawyers. And as long as you, as you have that amount of money floating around in the system and you have unscrupulous people who are more interested in protecting their product than protecting people uh, and wildlife and life on earth, then you're going to have a fight. And that's what we're engaged in now. So money influences industry, but how does this change anything about regulatory agencies such as the EPA or FDA? Great question. This gets kind of complicated. The relationship between industry and those in government positions is one that comes in many forms. Let's hear about one form of this relationship. There are multiple sources of that relationship. One is that um, the agencies are under tremendous political pressure because industry pays for politicians. It funds campaigns. Um, and, and those campaigns wind up with people who are favorably inclined towards industry and, not, and no regulation. Uh, and those politicians then bring pressure through Congress um, in many different ways. Uh, so that's one source of, of uh, conflict that's created. Another is that if you toe the line while you're at one of the agencies and you work with a company to suppress information about the danger of a chemical, there's a reasonable chance that not they, you won't get paid then, but there will be some wink of the eye about being paid later, about getting a job later. The, moving into industry after working in the EPA is an absolutely common phenomenon. And it, I, I don't want to deny people the right to uh, get jobs, but I think there ought to be more scrutiny into what happens after a person leaves the, the EPA or the FDA and who they work for and what type of decisions they're involved in. Geez, that sounds like a sticky situation and an even larger obstacle. It does. And for scientists, it is especially frustrating because the science and data get lost in all the politics, 
which makes it even more difficult to ensure public and environmental safety. We've covered a lot of material today, from the story of DES, which started in the 1940s, to the story of Rachel Carson's research and fears about a truly silent spring in the 1960s, all the way to the 1980s and 90s with Theo Colburn and Pete Myers. And from all of this history, the study of EDCs has made a huge impact on the way that we look at chemicals. That's very true. But our understanding of EDCs has also moved and influenced scientists, such as chemists, to design chemicals that are green and environmentally friendly. That seems like a smart way to bring industry, money, and science together. I would say so. But most importantly, by creating green chemistry initiatives, companies are acknowledging that there are environmental chemicals out there that we simply shouldn't use. They just aren't safe enough. So, what do Bing Crosby, Judy Garland, the Rolling Stones, the Beach Boys, and the Beatles all have in common? They were all there when it started, the study of EDCs in one form or another. We would like to extend our thanks to Dr. Pete Myers and Dr. Laura Vandenberg for their special contribution to this episode. A Daily Dose is a production of the SCOPE Summer Research Program at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. SCOPE is funded by a grant from the National Institutes of Health, National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences. These episodes were written and produced by Jillian Hughes, Maira Lima, Hennessy's Medina, Elise Pierce, Hannah Power, and Jody Zismore. <laughs>